0: It's The Society Show, with Christian Patterson, Christian Patterson, Christian Patterson, Christian Patterson, Christian Patterson, Christian Patterson, Patterson. featuring... Christian Patterson Christian Patterson and Christian Patterson Music from DJ Ski-Doo and the Society Show Soundboard Band with musical guest Hootie and the Blowfish and your host Christian Patterson ladies and gentlemen welcome your host Christian Patterson hello hello
1: and Thank you for listening to the Society Show. Do
0: you believe in society's laws?
1: My name is Christian. Thank you for listening to the Society Show podcast.
0: You know, we're living in a society.
1: We have the second episode, episode 102, the second episode of the new era. Welcome to the show. If you missed the last episode, the, uh, Society Show is back from its big hiatus. Here we are. Feels so good to be back. And, um, before, you know, if you listened to last episode, we had a lot of fanfare at the beginning. I was, uh... Shouting out all my staff, all the people who work here at the Society Show, and, you know, that's not what we're normally gonna do. That's a special occasion episode, but if you listen to that episode, you know that the Society Show has a new intern with, uh... Kind of, I would describe it as an unfortunate name, but then again, it is the only reason we hired him. His name is Napoleon Hitler. (laughs) And Napoleon uh, was not very happy with me because last episode, when he was trying to address the audience, I kept cutting him off, so... I told him he could talk about whatever he wanted to talk about today at the top of the show. So please welcome Napoleon Hitler. Hey everybody, I just wanted to say I am so happy that Elon Musk is running Twitter now. He rules! Um, yeah, sorry, Napoleon, but you're actually not allowed to say good things about Elon Musk on this show. He is formally on the show's denunciation list. Okay, well, anyway, uh, the other thing I wanted to say is November is both Diabetic Eye Disease Month, and I have a uh, diabetic eye disease myself, so keep that in mind. But it's also Aviation History Month, and I love planes. Also, go Lakers! All right, well, thank you, Napoleon. Um, I just want to say uh, that, you know everyone who works here isn't entitled to their own position but this is not a pro lakers podcast in fact i'm not even that big of a basketball fan but if you're listening we're rooting to for the trailblazers let's go But uh let's get into the show, shall we? You know, actually getting into some topics. I wanted to start the show with um one of my favorite fun facts that I learned about recently. It's pretty interesting. Um this will just be a short segment. I guess we could call this segment fun facts.
0: Is in the that- fun fact.
1: Did you know that Nazi, as in the National Socialist Party, did you know that Nazi has the same etymology as nacho, as in the food you can eat nachos? And they both come, if you go way back, from their etymological origin is from the Latin name Ignatius. Something like that. The German version of that name is Ignatz. The Spanish version of that name is Ignacio. Now, you might be thinking, well, Nazi didn't come from the name Ignatz. And actually, Nazi didn't come from Ignatz. It came from National Socialism. And in a way, you're right, but you're also kind of wrong. Ignatz was thought of as this kind of rural name, and the nickname for it, Nazi, was thought as I guess kind of like the German equivalent of like Cletus or something. It was like a hillbilly name. Like if you were, uh, if you went by Nazi, you like lived up in the, um, the Alps, and you know you were probably Bavarian or some shit, and like lived on a farm. You were a hillbilly. I don't. Know. That's basically what you were, and we're talking pre World War Two right now, obviously. But then, you know, so in, in Germany, the socialists were called Sozis from the so it's like the first two syllables of their party name and then you know there was no nickname for nazis at that time so what they kind of took nazi as a kind of following the similar pattern to sozi and socialist nazi sozi And but the reason the real reason they picked that is because it was a bumpkin nickname. It was a play on words. It was like a double entendre. And um so that is where Nazi came from. It would be like if we had a fascist party in the US and we call them like cletuses. That that's probably the best Example I can think of. Uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? Nachos, on the other hand, um, they were invented not that long ago. They were invented in a town right on the Mexican-Texas border. And they were initially called Nachos Especiales, which means nachos special. And nacho is a nickname for Ignacio, much like Nazi.
0: What do you call cheese that's not yours? Nacho cheese!
1: There you have it. You know, those... One of the most hated things in our society. Nazis. And one of the most beloved things in our society nachos even those things can share a tragic etymology and that's the fun fact of the week
0: fun fact
1: for this next story i am going to talk a little bit about this was this was mostly happening while the show was gone but i want to touch on it the controversy in chess about cheating If you're not familiar, there is a gentleman named Hans Niemann, and he is a young chess player. Uh, He's American, but he's from the Netherlands, or his family's from there. Hans Niemann beat the current world champion Magnus Carlsen in chess, and it was very surprising. A lot of people accuse Hans Niemann of cheating in this game. Hans Niemann basically came out and said, Yeah, I have cheated online before a couple times, but I have not cheated in person. Then, when they were supposed to uh, face each other again, um, Hans Niemann made two moves. And Carlsen made one. Um, Hans Niemann started by moving out his queen pawn. Magnus Carlsen responded with his king knight and then the c4 pawn for hans neiman i i guess this is like a queen's gambit invocation invitation or like a benoni defense i i don't really know the words but this is a common setup and then magnus carlson resigned there was a lot of back and forth like chess.com accused hans neiman of cheating more than he said and then um carlson made allegations And then Hans Niemann sued Carlson for his allegations. And ultimately, like, I guess what it came down to is the Chess.com released a report saying that he probably was cheating online and more than he said. But they had no evidence that he was cheating on in person. But that also actually doesn't really mean that much because Chess.com is only designed to detect cheating digitally like based on like if you click away and spend a bunch of time making a move and then all of a sudden you make this like crazy move that no one but a computer would have thought of it's that type of stuff they're detecting more than like however you cheat live over the board and then you know there was the a big part of this was how Hans Niemann was supposedly using like a vibrating anal beads to get the answer. The thing is like, as far as I know, that element of the story was just like made up by some like chess streamer, like not even seriously just as like, Oh, how could he have cheated? That's a way. Um, (laughs) and I mean, it did become a top news story worldwide. Uh, in large part because of the anal beat allegations, but I I never thought that was really, like, a serious allegation. The, you know, that gets reported in an article once, and that becomes the story. But um, anyway, the reason I wanted to talk about this is, uh, I guess the way cheating accusations are handled in the chess world makes them look really dumb and petty. Like, think about pro athletes don't accuse people of cheating nearly as often as chess players do and because if you're a pro athlete you accuse someone of cheating and you're wrong it makes you seem like the whiniest little poor sport who just like flings shit at people's reputation and if you're right that they were cheating like You will generally have to wait until there's definitive proof. And until then, you will still seem to a lot of people like a whiny baby. And that's just not the right way to handle cheating allegations is just by making like a public scene. And, you know, it's my understanding that a lot of chess grandmasters suspect their competitors of cheating. And I imagine there are plenty of pro athletes who suspect the same of their competitors. But they just keep that in mind and continue playing. Because someday you will be vindicated if they get caught. And you don't gain anything by flinging around cheating accusations. I guess that's just a way where it's like, professional chess players seem like asocial babies by not getting that like they don't get how dumb they look by just flinging around these kinds of accusations as to whether Hans even cheated or not I don't know a lot about chess I know a little bit I know more than your average person I do play it but I'm not an expert so this is just like Based on my observations, but in Hans Niemann's game against Magnus Carlsen, Magnus Carlsen made a couple of little mistakes that you don't normally expect the world chess champion to make, and Hans Niemann exploited those mistakes and so i that game that initiated this whole thing him beating um magnus carlson i really don't think he cheated during that and i could easily be wrong but that's just that's my stance basically but um how about we uh use this as an opportunity to transition to some news shall we facts don't care about your feelings facts don't care about your feelings these are facts and remember that the news segment on the society show this is not a breaking news show i i said this last episode and i make this point a lot this is not where you come for breaking news you know we we release the show once a week it's live to tape it's not live uh so i'm not the type to break breaking news and so instead i'm going to be focusing on several of the stories that happen when the show is on break mostly over the summer and talk about some of the impacts on
0: society
1: because that's more what we're here for what do events around the world say about society and the truth is when something's breaking news you can't really tell you need a little bit of time and levity to get there so this is ongoing but it did start uh, i want to say like at the end of august or beginning of september This is an article from Reuters. Fury grows in Iran over woman who died after hijab arrest now let me just read a little bit from the article protests persisted on sunday and hashtag masa amini became one of the top hashtags ever on persian language twitter as iranians fumed over the death of a young woman in the custody of morality police enforcing strict hijab rules amini 22 died on friday after falling into a coma following her arrest in tehran earlier in the week this case has put a spotlight on women's rights in Iran. And of course, the Iranian police deny that they did anything to this woman, and these protests are still largely ongoing. And there is an element of the story that doesn't get highlighted as much, and I'm kind of surprised. So, uh, let me, so there's a lot of talk on social media about how legitimate these protests are. A lot of the more like paranoid anti-american left which I definitely fall into sometimes um, I'm not very paranoid but I, I am more conspiratorial than some people and I am definitely anti-american left so you know a lot of people kind of in that space say these are not legit protests these are cia um spurred and sponsored and the
0: cia's assassination manual
1: the cia and u.s intelligence or whatever are latching on to this to make Iran look bad and you know i don't disagree with that i think it's kind of overstated how much the u.s might be involved in conducting these protests I think they might be trying to be involved, but, like, the thing is, if someone gets killed in a really unjust way in police custody, the the people on the ground don't need to wait for some foreign government to, like, covertly support them. This is the type of thing people protest about. You don't need the CIA to tell you that. But having said all that, one part of the story that gets highlighted a lot less than I'd expect is Masa Amini was from, like, the Kurdish parts of Iran, and, you know, a lot of the protests um, were in the Kurdish areas. A lot of Kurdish rights groups were very involved in protesting against this, and I guess what's weird about that is the U.S. government has use Kurds to advance their agenda since like before the Iraq war since like the first Persian Gulf War maybe even earlier and the reality is Kurdish people still struggle against like the local governments like Turkey and Iran on and all that but and that is not to be dismissed like i'm not being like oh kurds are all like u.s intelligence stooges but it is like that is a project that u.s intelligence has built up we have to support the kurds and generally i agree so i'm, I'm not like being like salty about it or something i'm just surprised that That part of the story that she was Kurdish hasn't been emphasized more in American media. Maybe it has in some other places I'm not familiar with, but ultimately why I wanted to talk about this story is because... I ostensibly support the government of Iran in some ways. I support them fighting against U.S. hegemony in the Middle East. I support them fighting against ISIS. I support them fighting against the Saudi Arabian power block that's uh, kind of trying to take hold of the Middle East. Like, Iran does good things in geopolitics, and they aren't nearly as, like, dubious uh, about what they do in global politics as the U.S. makes them out to be. They they do things like target ISIS. Like, when the U.S. killed Qasem Soleimani, the leader of the IRGC, he's probably more responsible for fighting ISIS than any singular individual, and we assassinated him. So, take that for what it's worth. And so, you know, I'm I'm probably apologizing for Iran in this segment more than most Americans would, right? Like, you know, and that's kind of my thing. Like if you listen to the show, I like to talk about countries as I see them. Like I don't like to just prescribe to the US as like prescribed way to talk about countries like you know if the u.s had their way you could never say one single positive thing about china even if you're overall like anti-china and I, i i more call it as i see fit i don't kowtow to this sort of like american for foreign policy agenda and all of that being said i still think american leftists should support these protests Not because you want to overthrow the Iranian government, not because you're a neocon, not because you think the U.S. should be involved in any way, but what they're protesting against in Iran is the same type of injustices that leftists protest against in the U.S., so You should really kind of keep that level of perspective instead of just being like Iran good and also uh, the U.S. bad. So protests against Iran are bad because they might help the U.S., which is bad. It's just the world is a little more complicated than seeing it entirely from like this like desire for a multipolar world. And when it comes to fighting for everyday stuff against everyday oppression you know we should support people all around the world whether it's against a government we support or not
0: you know what i say protest is your ass I don't talk about my
1: ass. This next story I'm talking about is regarding the uh, new Kazakhstan president. There's been some changes to the country of Kazakhstan. This is from Al Jazeera headline. Kazakhstan limits presidential term and renames capital. The subhead. President Takayev signed a bill reinstating capital's name to Astana from Nur Sultan. So I pulled up Astana on Wikipedia. This city has quite the history of names. It has had many different names throughout its time. It is believed that Astana was a settlement founded in 1830, possibly named after a local landmark called Akmola, which literally means white grave or holy city although this theory is not universally accepted. In 1832, it was granted town status and renamed Akmalinsk. Again, this is from Wikipedia, not the article. In 1997, the city replaced Almaty as the capital of Kazakhstan. In 1998, 1998, it was renamed Astana, which means capital city. In 2019, it was renamed Nur-Sultan, in honor of the long-ruling Kazakh president Nursultan Nazarbayev shortly after his resignation. So he's like, oh, I'm about to peace out, you know, I'm going to resign, but um, I'm going to name the capital city after me on my way out. <laughs> and then in September of this year, the new president, Kasim Tokayev announced that the city would go back to being called Astana. According to this Wikipedia page, it holds the Guinness World Record for the city with the most name changes. So, that's pretty interesting. So, I mean, let's get back into this article. Again, this is from Al Zira, quote, President Kasim Jomart Tokayev signed a bill on Saturday extending presidential mandates to a seven-year term from the current five and barring any president from running for a second term in office. So that's kind of weird. Instead of it being five-year terms with re-election, it's seven-year terms with no re-election. Kind of a long time, but okay. If this
0: goes on for too long... If I get bored, I'll stop you.
1: So I'm getting a little more insight from this article. I got into it, you know, about how he was like, on his way out, peace out, I'm renaming the capital. So how it really happened is, it's a little more detailed than that. It says, after Nazarbayev stepped down in 2019, his successor, Tokayev, the current president move to name it Nur-Sultan. So immediately after he stepped down in honor of Nazarbayev. But then Tokayev, the current president, took him out of any honorary posts he was because there were protests against him by people rightfully acknowledging, dude, this Nazarbayev guy is not president anymore, but he really holds all all of the power. And after that, Tokayev has distanced himself from Nazarbayev. Um, And that's kind of where this name change comes from pretty interesting i wanted to talk about this because neither of these things seem particularly possible under like american economic system it's like we're in political systems we can never rename washington dc if someone suggested it it would turn into like a three months media spectacle and then it would just go away like nothing would happen so this is a really good prospect a really good look into how politics can work in a place where the state isn't as just doesn't have just such a strangle just a vice grip on all of culture and society that can happen in countries like kazakhstan can't happen here
0: voice become a deep borat borat
1: and while we are talking about elections i do want to talk about a couple elections in the around the world the first one i want to talk about is the The 2022 Colombian presidential election that was this last May, and then they had a runoff election in June. The winner of this election was Gustavo Petro, who was the former mayor of Bogota and a current senator. He defeated a man named Rodolfo Hernandez Suarez this guy um, Rodolfo Hernandez Suarez who lost so in a lot of ways he's pretty right wing like he um, <laughs> but it's complicated because he is pretty at least on the surface um, on the on, in favor of some kind of like social rights like he's in favor of same-sex marriage. Um, legalizing weed, euthanasia, um, gay adoption, stuff like that. But on the other side, he is very much a. Um, he, he's very hard on, you know, any sort of left wing activism. He's really into anti corruption. He's been kind of described as like a Berlusconi of Columbia type figure, Um, but it's hard to say. He did say that in a 2016 interview, I am a follower of a great German thinker named Adolf Hitler, and then he later apologized and said he meant to say Albert Einstein, so (laughs) that's interesting, but let's focus on the guy who won, Gustavo Petro. He was a guerrilla member of the 19th of April movement, M19, which was the leftist group that was, I mean, it was a political party, but it was also kind of had some more radical elements, and so, like, I mean, it was considered a guerrilla group but you know like a lot of Central and South American politics it's like guerrilla groups are like the military branches of a larger political movement um and you know he's just he seems like an awesome guy like he might not be a super leftist or anything but he does have a lot more leftist bona fides than me or most americans who might be like oh he's not left enough and you know i think he's about as good as a country like Colombia, which has been just been so dominated by u.s like imperialism the u.s has basically made it it's like designated drug state the way it used to make banana republics like that's how Colombia is but for drugs so i mean this is about as good as Colombia is gonna get in my personal opinion and i'm really happy with the results
0: They're telling me it isn't real when they had a- Vote in the goddamn fucking
1: Senate. Some other elections I wanted to uh, talk about is more recently there was the election in Brazil where Lula Lula won. Um, it's interesting that he won considering that like half of S- South Americans still consider him a thief because of the just most fake trial ever where the judge Judge Moro or whatever was collaborating with Bolson to fabricate the stupidest just most made-up charges against him Um, a lot of people still believe it but he still managed to win and then I guess we could also talk about this is not in South America but the Filipino elections I talked about this a little bit beforehand I did a segment about the upcoming Filipino elections and I talked about how Manny Pacquiao was running well Manny Pacquiao ended up not really making a impact at all on this election I mean he did he got like Almost 10% of the vote, but the winner was a man named Bong Bong Marcos. His dad was the Filipino dictator Ferdinand Marcos, and uh, just to be clear, little Bong Bong Marcos is absolutely worse than Duterte. Sadly, so we'll see what happens in the Philippines. And for our last story, this is kind of a ongoing story, but. um, um, it seems like Saudi Arabia wants to break up with the US.
0: I know it breaks your heart.
1: If you don't understand the US Saudi relationship, keep in mind that and this is all stuff that Adam Curtis goes into in both Hypernormalization and Bitter Lake. That's kind of where I learned most of this background. But when the state of Saudi Arabia was founded, the House of Saud basically made this agreement with the Wahhabi religious movement um, and has basically been like a main feature of the Saudi regime since then. May Allah awaken the people. But when the House of Saud allied with the Wahhabis, they essentially made that the de facto Um, ideology of the regime to satisfy the most rabidly right-wing and oppressive elements of Saudi Arabia. So in a lot of ways, they retain their extreme oppression to not because they're like, not like they care, but more to satiate the rabid right-wing elements that they have uh, fostered to retain their power so it's a little more like there's more real politics involved but then you fast forward to the world war Two, mostly at the end of world war Two, and fdr makes an agreement with the house of saud basically agreeing that You know, we'll back you as an oil producing country. We will have your back, protect you. Uh, We'll allow you to just export and produce as much oil as you want. But you got to trade it in the U.S. dollar. And this agreement has been crucial to the U.S.'s as well as the Saudi's power structure. But that's kind of changing. Saudi, the Saudi Arabia has not been particularly keen on providing any sort of human rights or anything like that. I mean, they occasionally make gestures to human rights to placate their Western benefactors, but, you know, they don't really make an effort. And, and then they, now what's happening is they really are trying to increase their individual power as an oil generating country as one of the most powerful oil countries without having the u.s be their middleman they're producing less oil to drive up costs um and they're basically just like yeah we're not we don't really want to play ball anymore sorry that's kind of their perspective. So then now we have, with that background, we have an article from the Middle East Eye. Quote, Saudi cousin of Mohammed bin Salman threatens West with jihad and martyrdom. subheadline. Saud al-Shalan, tribal leader and grandson of King Abdulaziz, issues warning as is tensions spike with U.S. over OPEC plus oil production cut from the body. A cousin of Saudi blah, 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 has issued a violent threat against the West amid souring relations over a decision by OPEC Plus to cut oil production. In a message, quote, to the West, Saud al shalan is seen in a video circulating on social media saying, quote, anybody who challenges the existence of this kingdom, we are all projects of jihad and martyrdom, end quote. The prince is heard issuing this warning in English and French. His intervention comes as relations between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia have hit a nadir. N-A-D-I-R. in a With energy prices rising following Russia's February invasion of Ukraine, Washington has lobbied members of the OPEC plus oil cartel, particularly Saudi Arabia, to increase production. U.S. President Joe Biden traveled to the kingdom in July despite previously promising to turn Saudi Arabia into a pariah following the 2018 murder of Jamal Khashoggi. And his administration briefed media that they believed the Saudis would ramp up production. Instead, a small increase was followed by a decision last week to cut oil production by 2 million barrels per day, which could raise prices globally. Washington has reacted furiously, accusing Saudi Arabia of helping Russia to relieve the pressure of sanctions placed on it over the Ukraine war so that's where we're at Saudi Arabia is basically like yeah we have the oil and uh, if you have a problem with that we will do another 9-11 because they did do the first 9-11 just to be clear
0: I have a window in my apartment that specifically was aimed at the World Trade Center because of the beauty of the whole downtown Manhattan and I watched as people jumped and I watched the second plane come in
1: And um, I am going to close out the show. That was the news. Facts don't care about your feelings. Facts don't care about your feelings. These are facts. I am going to close out the show adding someone to the denunciation list. And that man is a man named Gatam Adani.
0: Oh yeah, you're laughing? You know what? You know what's gonna happen? No, no, oh, you no, know no, what's no, happening? No, you know right no, no, now? No, no, huh? You know what's gonna no, happen? No, no, no no no, Words? no, no, no! No! You just made the list. You
1: may not have heard of him, but Gadamitani, you just made the list. You
0: just made the list! He
1: is an old school type kind of hyper wealthy person and he doesn't really exist in the US. Or like it's a type of person that doesn't really exist in the US anymore. Like he's an old school industrialist type. Um, he lives in India by the way and uh, so he founded the Adani group which you know according to Wikipedia works in a wide way of A wide array of industries, including, let's see, port management, electric power generation, and transmission, renewable energy, mining... Airports, natural gas, food processing, infrastructure. Adani is the majority owner of the Mumbai International Airport. He's bought major cement companies. And the Mundra port, the largest port in India, is managed and administered by his company as a contractor. He owns several coal mines in Australia. What? so you get the idea he just owns a ton of shit and in the past few years he has gotten much of his global recognition through kind of like championing green energy he received the world's largest contract to install solar energy in india in 2020 and has announced that he was heavily investing in green energy beyond that in 2021 But, I mean, keep in mind that Adani is still mostly an old-school industrialist, and the green energy publicity does not counteract or mitigate the pollution he and his company is already responsible for. And, you know, just to be clear, the reason we are talking about him is... Ketamitani. he's really freaking rich. He is now richer than Jeff Bezos.
0: Jeff Bozo.
1: Um, so he first entered into industry to illustrate why his green energy publicity can't really overwrite what he's done in the past. He uh first entered industry by getting into plastics. He was a major importer of PVC into India. His first big break, however, was not really any kind of clever financial maneuvering or savvy business sense. Um, so while this segment is for denouncing Gautama Donnie as a loser billionaire, um, I actually kind of want to use most of this segment to talk about the material and political conditions that led to his billionaire status. Because if you're like me, if you're from the US or a country with an economy like the US's, then it is it's taken as a given basically that people can become billionaires. Of course anyone has the capacity to become a billionaire. That's how the US thinks. But when we look at the changes in kind of like economic conditions over time in a different country It becomes easier to understand how the existence of billionaires is a policy position. So let's dive deeper into the history of India, shall we? When India first achieved independence, they were not socialistic per se, but they did have, like, kind of some political features that more resembled the Soviet bloc then they resembled the capitalist world. Like they put much more emphasis on internal production over importation, for example, that's different than the capitalist countries. And not to mention much of the Indian industry, like heavy industry, mining, metal production, utilities, insurance, all of that stuff was nationalized. And back then, India also used kind of like a five-year plan-style economic system, not unlike the Soviet Unions. Like, and they were still been using this five-year plan system until 2017, but back then, like, they were legitimately centrally planning the economy. And in the 80s, there was some liberalization attempts, mainly making it easier to start a private business. There was um, even some more economic liberalization here and there in the decades before that, like the 60s and 70s. But what really helped Adani became the second richest man in the world was India receiving IMF loans and being unable to pay them back. As India entered um, kind of a political crisis, both because of the overdue IMF loans, but also the assassination of Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi, I'll get into that, Rajiv Gandhi was a member of a great Indian political dynasty that had no relation to Mahatma Gandhi, just to be clear. So Rajiv took over the country in 1986 when his mother Indira Gandhi was assassinated as well as prime minister. His mom was prime minister. Indira Gandhi was assassinated by two of her guards who were Sikhs because Indira had ordered the Indian military to intervene at the Golden Temple. And the Golden Temple is a famous Punjabi temple. It's uh, important to several different li- religions, but particularly important to Sikhs. So a Sikh group was occupying the temple through the 80s, and Indira Gandhi called the troops on them. Over a thousand people died, and there was major structural damage in and- I mean, I could do a whole episode on the Indian suppression of the Sikhs in the 80s because not only was it an act of oppressive kind of state violence against a minority minority group, which is remarkable itself, but um, it was also largely a side effect of intelligence maneuverings and the conflict originated from a lot of espionage, like leaking false info and that type of stuff. By both the Indian and Pakistani intelligence, but also the CIA and KGB. So his mom got assassinated by these Sikh nationalists, basically. Rajiv Gandhi took over at this time when there was not only a lot of political strife, but major economic strife. And... After Sikhs assassinated Indira Gandhi, there were kind of these major anti-Sikh riots and mass killings, basically programs against Sikhs throughout India. And so that's a problem for his presidency. He also, Rajiv Gandhi, governed during uh, the time of a major gas leak that poisoned half a million people. had several controversies like this so both Gandhi and his mother's issue with the Sikh minority um, is what really paved the way for Gautama Adani's rise as India's most richest man indirectly Both Gandhi and his mother's issue with the Sikh minority um, was a major problem for him, but it's not exactly what paved the way for um, Adani becoming the world or India's most richest man. I mean, it did pave the way in a very indirect way, but what really paved the way was Rajiv Gandhi's conflict with the Tamil Tigers. If you're unfamiliar with the Tamil Tigers, they are, by the standards of many countries, a terrorist organization. They are, or were, I don't really know if they fully exist anymore, they were an ethnically Tamil militant left-wing organization. So... The Tamil Tigers were primarily active in Sri Lanka, and Sri Lanka was very ethnically it was a very ethnically oppressive country. I don't know about any more, but in the fifties there were several pogroms against Tamil people by the Sinhalese majority. And a law was also passed at this time, changing the official language from English to Sinhala. And like, you know, for the majority, this was celebrated as shedding their colonial past. But to Tamils, this really just further cemented the Sinhalese as the dominant ethnic group and Tamils as the oppressed minority. And this escalated throughout the decades. Like in the 70s, the Tamil Tigers and other Tamil militant groups formed. And in the 80s, a civil war broke out between the Tamil separatists and the Sri Lankan government. And this really did not implicate the Indian government at first. And in fact, at first, the Indian government had a lukewarm relationship with the Tigers. They weren't as opposed to kind of rabble-rousing in Sri Lanka. They didn't have that much of an issue with it until 1988. In 1988, there was an attempted coup in the island country of the Maldives. The Maldives is a country I've talked about on the show before. It is a large archipelago in the Indian Ocean. The coup was led by a Maldivian businessman named Abdullah Luthufi. But this ties in because Abdullah Luthufi operated a farm in Sri Lanka and consequently he used the Tamil Tigers as a military force to coup the Maldives. So after sneaking in a relatively small amount of tigers, they quickly seized infrastructure like the airport, radio, TV stations, and this greatly alarmed Rajiv Gandhi because, you know, he saw India as the dominant power in South Asia, and this coup was kind of undermining India in his view. So... Not only that, but the most southern state of India is Tamil Nadu, which is primarily ethnically Tamil. Indian Tamils generally saw themselves primarily as Indian, secondarily as Tamil, unlike Sri Lankan Tamils. Um, And Rajiv Gandhi didn't want Tamil separatism as an idea to spread to India. So Gandhi sent the Indian military to stop the coup in the Maldives, and he began sending Indian quote-unquote peacekeepers to Sri Sri Lanka. So after Rajiv Gandhi's peacekeeping forces left Maldives, he was campaigning for re-election in the Indian state of Tamil Nadu, Um, now it's May 1991, Gandhi was walking towards the stage to give a campaign speech when a teenage woman came up and greeted him. The woman then detonated a suicide bomb, killing Gandhi herself and at least 14 others. And I mean, it was suspected immediately and generally confirmed immediately that the assassination was perpetrated by Tamil separatists. The teenage woman who detonated the bomb as well as another teenage girl accompanying her were both shadow members of the Tamil Tigers. And another thing that was immediately suspected, but not officially disclosed by the Indian government until 2016 is that a lot of the assassination, plotting, planning, designing, all of that, came from separatist Sikhs with deep ties to the Sikhs who were suppressed by Rajiv Gandhi's mother in the same incident that paved the way for Rajiv Gandhi seizing power to begin with. Now isn't that poetry right there? Now, I'm sure you're all wondering, well, we started talking about this Indian billionaire. Then you started talking about conflict in India between Sikhs, the Tamil Tigers, Maldivian coup plotters, all this other stuff. But now is how it all ties together. Following Gandhi's assassination, a man named PV Narasimha Rao became the new prime minister of India. Remember earlier when I said that, you know, initially had a rather centrally planned economy and there were earlier attempts to liberalize the Indian economy. Well, India's economic crisis came to a head when Rao became PM of India in February 1991. They attempted to pass a new budget, the Indian Congress, and it did not go through. And in response to this, the WTO and IMF refused to issue more money to India. This basically coerced reforms on India, no matter who was in charge, really, or else the country would functionally go bankrupt. It also didn't help that the USSR, one of the poles of the multipolar world, collapsed. India was not part of the Eastern Bloc, but they were a non-aligned country, and they did receive support from the Soviets. So with that pull of potential support gone, India had to integrate fully into this kind of like global neoliberal economy. And because of that... Prime Minister Rao has the unfortunate, or unfortunate from my perspective, privilege of being referred to as the father of Indian economic reforms. It was basically a necessity to make these reforms and to stay afloat in the increasingly globalized world, but I mean, damn. Through it, you can see how the WTO and the IMF are agents in neoliberalism and a mechanism for neocolonialism. And to draw this all back to our subject, Gautam Adani, we can also see that the only reason Adani was able to become one of the richest men in the world was because of these IMF and WTO mandated reforms. And I mean, I don't want to make it seem like India had a different path. They had like a split in a road and had to choose. The economic reforms were largely overdetermined. If they didn't happen when they did, they would have happened sooner or shortly after. And this is also a good illustration that when the material and political conditions in a society change and become more unstable, there's a tendency to change. And depending on the conditions, it indicates how the change happens. Does the country become more revolutionary or more reactionary? What about the cases in India? There were rapid changes in instability, but part of that instability came from the Indian government suppressing the revolutionary forces, but the reactionary forces weren't very strong either. The dominant political party, at least at the time Indian national Congress was, was, and is this kind of centrist big tent party and sublimated within itself was most institutional power for the right wing. The right wasn't mobilized in India in this way until the BJP became a relevant political party, which didn't happen until a little later. It's also worth remembering that India's political landscape looked different from Western countries because they had not yet globalized. And because of that, it's hard to be reductive about stuff like left versus right, like... I'm not educated on Indian politics enough to be more nuanced than that. But anyway, my point is, out of all this instability, there was no program to replace the old program. The only new program available was the globally dominant, all-consuming... Neoliberalism, And that neoliberalism was by far the most major force attempting to establish a new program in India at the time. But anyway, in conclusion, I have two quick anecdotes about Gautama Adani, some things he faced on his road to the top. On January 1st, 1998, that's New Year's Day, a Donnie and a local politician were abducted at gunpoint after they left what seems to be a country club type thing called Carnivati Club. A scooter forced their car to stop and then a group of men arrived in a van and abducted them. They were seemingly abducted by an underworld don named Fazlu Rahman. That ended up working out. But then almost eleven years later, on November twenty sixth, two thousand eight, a was eating dinner at Mumbai's Taj Hotel when the building was attacked by Lashkar E. Taiba a pakistani islamist terrorist organization adani hid in the basement while 160 people died and according to the media he was eating dinner when he saw members of the group enter the hotel fire indiscriminately and throw grenades the hotel staff moved him and other people to the basement then the basement started losing oxygen, so they moved upstairs. And then the next morning, they took Gatamadami out back and escorted him away in a police van. And so, this is Gatamadami, the newest addition to the society show denunciation list.
0: You just made the list!
1: And, you know, while we're adding Gautama Donnie for becoming richer than Jeff Bezos, that draws attention to something very important. Namely, Jeff Bezos was not on the denunciation list before today. So, of course, it's the new era. He should have been on the denunciation list to begin with. So he's going on it, too. Jeff Bezos, you just made the list.
0: You just made the list! (laughs)
1: we got a two for one for our great episode you just made the list as well jeff bezos and with that you have been listening to the society show my name is christian you can follow me personally on twitter at christian is cool is is spelled iz christian iz cool and you can follow the show on Twitter at Society underscore Show. You can follow more inf- information about the show at SocietyShow.net, and you can reach out to the show at show podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the show my name is christian and this has been the society show